Hello and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stomp. And I know it's been a while, but I've always said that we'll only do an episode when we have a good guest and um, when we've got something interesting to talk about. And and that being said, I will let Helen, our latest guest, introduce herself to you. So over to you, Helen. Thanks, Shabazz. So I'm Helen Rowlands and um, I am... Uh, based in Northwich in Cheshire, and I have uh, been invited, I think, to come on today because of my uh, equalities and disability rights activism. Right, so Helen, to kick us off then, we'll generally talk about the Conservative Party conference, right? Okay. And, um, you know, so that was like a, a week or so ago. And what did you think of that? In terms of activism? (laughs) In terms of activism, well, um, as as you know, Shabazz, I was um, kind of supporting uh, Manchester Deepak's uh, action uh, that took place at, at, well, during the conference. Um, What we did was uh, crowdfund the hiring of of an ad van and we put out a call to disabled people and their allies and their organisations, asking them to record messages to the Conservative government um, about their lived experiences of disability. And uh, we had had an amazing response from uh, people from all walks of life across the country. And yeah, so a a lot of work went into packaging that correctly, making it accessible with signing and captioning and, uh, and and as you know, that 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 van drove those messages very very close to the conference, um, and we'll be putting it on on YouTube pretty soon. Yeah, and um, one of the PAP members had a word with uh, Jacob Rees Mogg, didn't he? He certainly did. He had a few words with him. And um, yeah, but I bring that up because. It goes to show you can put all the planning in the world and all of the, uh, you know, logistics that we all had to do. And lots of people did a lot of work. So I won't say I was one of the main people that did a lot of work, but there was a lot of people behind the scenes doing a lot of work. And then you accost somebody in the street and hey, press, so you get in the press. Yeah, yeah um, I, I mean, you've probably seen more, more than me, but I saw something in Cheshire Live, and I think the Mirror as well, but it, it was mainly online on Twitter that I saw uh, Dominic's uh, in, in the video, and the last time I checked, I think about 45,000 people had seen it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so I, I think that leads me on to... An interesting thing we can talk about in terms of the media and uh, getting your point across. So, do you think uh, Deepak or anybody campaigning as an organisation can learn from that experience as a whole? Not just the, you know, speaking to a politician or anything like that, but the, the amount of time and effort we put into what we did you know 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking to two people from uh, the Green Party um, this morning on a Zoom about exact, exactly this. We were talking about campaigning, we were talking about activism, uh, and what, one, one of the people on the call was making the point that, um, in her view, as a disabled woman and a disabled activist, she felt it was uh, essential to try and uh, remobilize dis disability activism and with, with, with the view to, to getting people out en masse into street level protesting again. So we had this interesting discussion about that and about all the, um, the different factors that mitigate ag against big turnouts happening at street demonstrations. So I, I was in London uh, two weeks ago now at, at, at a, de a Deepak demonstration outside Kings Cross Station. And we shut, shut down the Euston Road for half an hour or so. And, um, and, and, and the person that I was speaking to this morning um, had been at another Deepak protest outside Downing Street uh, during the Audio Riot Week of Action. Um, so we were talking about that, we, you know, in her view, that's, that, that, that's critical, that kind of action to ensuring the visibility of disabled people, to, to combat all those different structural factors that lead to uh, disabled people re being removed from the public sphere. Hmm. You know, I d what do you think about that? I think uh, it's quite complicated because, yeah, on the one hand, it's uh, important for people to protest classically in numbers, but when you've got COVID, it complicates it. And I know from knowing you myself that you were a bit wary of going down to London, going down to London, uh, you know, when you recently did because of COVID and stuff like that. So, you know, and the other thing that just struck me, you told me about those two actions there. And I, I don't know for sure, but I bet you they weren't in the news as much as that clip of Jacob Rees-Mogg was in the news. This this is it. I mean, I, th I think we got some coverage um in uh, maybe you could call it the sort of niche activism uh, media, um, and obviously John Pr John Prin, who's our great ally, great ally of the disability rights movement, and his uh, disability news service. You know, uh, just owe him always a massive debt of gratitude because he so diligently covers all those kinds of actions, all those kinds of protests um but you're absolutely right because of the way that the, the the news media operates because of the way that social media operates what they're looking for um is the visual and they're looking for confrontation and they're looking for um things with a kind of uh th theatrical uh, element to them perhaps you know and um 
I've no idea whether or not um, Dominic, who was in the video challenging Reese Mogg, I don't, I don't know whether or not that was planned or completely spontaneous, but it certainly did, did the trick, you know, because it, it ticked every box in terms of, of, of what plays well on social media. Yeah. Yeah, it's both heartening and disheartening at the same time, isn't it? If you get yeah. what I mean, it's like... Yeah, sure. And because like, you can't really plan for that kind of thing, can you? I mean, I'm, no. there's no way that he can have planned for Reese Mogg to walk by that way. No, no. And mm. it all depends on each other's reactions, doesn't it? Mm. But when you mentioned, you know, John Pring there, and I've had this conversation with other people, mm. and with, uh, you know, I always feel this with Rick Burgess as well, you know? Like, I always... I go and, and before I say this, I don't mean any ill ill will to any of those two people. But I always think to myself, what would happen to the activist scene in Manchester if, or or in the UK, if anything happened to either yeah. one of those two people? Yeah, you get yeah. what I mean? Or I absolutely get what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm trying to say here is that those of us who are not those people need to, whatever we can, to build up enough infrastructure so that if anything does happen, or they just can't be bothered anymore, quite frankly, <laughs> quite frankly, somebody, you could just wake up one day and go, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Nobody's going to hold a gun to anyone, So, you know, we might have to, but, you know, but I'm saying that what I'm trying to say is we as activists, we need to find the ways of building up infrastructure so it's not reliant on me or, you know, you or any or a handful of people because millions of people are relying on, on activists. And, it, and if they knew it was only a handful of people, it'd be quite scary, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was on a, a Zoom with um, a disabled activist who uh, was doing a lot of work um, in Minnesota, actually, um, yeah. for Black Lives Matter. Um, so under COVID, under COVID conditions, she was basically doing a lot of organising of uh, disability rights activists um, intersecting with the work of Black Lives Matter and organising PPE and all sorts of things to make sure that people could uh, get out on the streets if that's what they wanted to do, but also making sure that there were plenty of other opportunities for uh, the disabled activists who were shielding uh, to, to take part in other valued ways. Mm. And um, uh well, for a start, she sent solidarity to to us for what we were doing in Manchester, which was fantastic. Um, but she was talking a lot about not only self care and how critical that is um, if you if you are doing a lot of this kind of work, but also um, you know caring for the community, caring for one another within within activism communities is is also very important. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Um I think that's a very interesting uh, point because I, I think people that are on the ground in it all the time, 
forget that we have to look after each other. I mean, I don't want to make myself out to be a big activist here or anything like that, but I'm saying the people that pound the streets day in, day out need to remember to look after each other as well, not just think they magically appear for the protest and that's it. And the rest of the time, their life is completely something else, you know? Sure. But have you got any ideas in terms of or any starting points on how we would go around about changing the media monopoly in the UK? Oh. Uh, well, I'm, I suppose, I suppose... That... I don't mean to put you on the spot. We can, we can talk through it together. Yeah. I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, I'm, I, I guess, I guess I'm thinking about when, when social media started up and how, how, how that appeared at first to have this kind of liberatory potential. Yeah. And I suppose I don't know about you, but I, I think I've gone on a journey from being initially kind of overwhelmed by the possibilities of of being able to connect not just regionally nationally but internationally uh idea sharing information sharing all all that good stuff yeah. i think i've gone on a journey from being positive about that to feeling increasingly uh wor worried about 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 um this sort of dom domination of of of, uh, of our lives by the digital, and uh, in terms of me media, you know, again, I'm kind of at a point where I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to struggle really with finding. I don't want to sound like overwhelmingly negative here, but I, I think there are there are lots and lots of things about the way that we're now uh, communicating online digitally that we hadn't planned for. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and just uh, to to keep it in mind for people, we are talking about the Tory Party conference, but I just wanted to broaden the discussion out into you know, the media, because I think that is where the discussion needs to happen. And we need to, like you say, talk about not the good, just the good sides of the social media, but the bad sides. And and I know you're worried about being overwhelmingly negative, but I think it, to be, if you want to be overwhelmingly negative, in a way, you've come to the right place, <laughs> because you know I'm. I'm a. I the the older I get, the deeper I go, in terms of, you know, down into things, and like, and I just think, we we're, we're at a really dangerous time right now, you know, uh, because with the rise of fascism. All over, all over the world, not just in this country, but all over the world. I mean, look at the last uh, U.S. election. 
people stormed the capital, you know. I don't know. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember what were you doing when that happened? Were you kind of watching it live? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous, and and then you watch the the election results. Seventy something like seventy five million people voted for for Donald Trump. And you know what else to bring it back to this country, the UK? You know what else I was having a conversation with somebody about today was I don't want to have a Brexit argument, right? But you know, uh, in this country there was sixteen million people that voted to remain. Why? Why have they been forgotten as a block of vote, as a voting block of people? Why have they been been forgotten? You know, uh, and the Labour Party seems stuck for ideas, but yet they're not harnessing the the hum the people that probably like are for human rights and like for workers' rights when the voted remit. You can't lump them all in together, but I'd say on the whole, they're probably for workers' rights and human rights. The remainers, well, right? Oh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because before anybody said, oh, you know, you're lumping them all together. But that's what politicians do anyway. They do that with demographics. What what, what they do with the Red Wall, you know? That doesn't exist anyway. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm pretty sure that they only started talking about the Red Wall as... as, as I, do you know what? I, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but I think Game of Thrones has had a really um, uh, pernicious uh, kind of influence on our political life, quite honestly. Do you think? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, the, the, you know, the, the, the wall in Game of Thrones... I mean, it functions obviously within Game of Thrones on a, on a number of levels. But um, I start when I was watching it, and you know, like millions of other people, I did get very engrossed in it for the first I don't know, like three or four seasons or something, and then I kind of yeah. lost interest. But that I started worrying watching that that the wall was functioning as a kind of fascistic trope, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, and you got to remember Donald Trump's wall as well. So, yeah. you yeah. know, and and if the Labour Party, for example, I, I keep referring to this red wall, it's, well, it's like... I think a lot of the journalists, the political journalists, you know, like p political journalistic discourse is very masculinist. It's, it uses a lot of war metaphors. It uses all, all the kind of language of, of combat, you know violent combat a lot of the time and um and i think a lot of those uh journalists you know were into game of thrones quite honestly and were were borrowing from it you know when they yeah. started talking about this alleged red wall you know um but in um talking about donald trump and talking about the wall what's happened now as reading the other day in the washington post is that um you have uh you have trump supporters um patrolling uh sections of the the border with mexico and they, they are essentially um 
setting themselves up as 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 vigilantes, you know, and they are they they're going down there and they are terrorizing um, the migrant people there, including children. They're filming them without their consent and putting that online, you know. Um, lots of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. So so it just surprises me that people aren't talking about the Remain vote in the in this country because yeah. remember the referendum was one person one vote you know and there's no safety it's no 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 tactical voting or anything you know you go there you vote and uh, you know 17 and a half million votes for brexit and 16 for it to remain remain but the the people who've lost the referendum seemed to be completely forgotten. I understand that the people, uh, when you've won an election or whatever, you've the party wins or what, and the the policy gets implemented. But you can't in in a society just dismiss everybody else's views, surely. Hmm. Well, I mean, you can. I mean, you can, as in the political parties can, uh, and all that the electorate can do in response to that is um, is 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 withdraw their support, you know, and, and and get the message across that way in the only language that politicians ultimately understand, you know. <laughs> That's yeah. that 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 is the the only language, the only message. Uh, that gets through to them, and, um, and and we'll have we'll have to see we'll have to see, won't we, at the next general election how uh, how it plays plays out for the opposition parties if they if they continue down this path, you know. Um, but, but the leader of the Labour Party just seems intent on peeling off soft and Tories if there's anything like that, and I and I can only imagine there's. Only a handful of them that were willing would be willing to come over to Keir Starmer, because what what would he be offering that that would be so appealing to them to go come over from Boris Johnson that you know as 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 made a country where he can do whatever he likes really. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a, as a former uh, Labour Party member and a former Labour Party supporter, um, you know, all, all I can say is that, you know, I live on a, a small street um, that, because I did a lot of door knocking for the Labour Party in the last general election, the last local elections, and, you know, that I, I, I pretty much know the people on my small street who were Labour voters. And I I know that five of them who had, that's including myself, who had voted Labour all their lives, all their electoral lives, had um, have, uh, have told me, you know, that they will not be voting, that they will not be voting for the Labour Party next time. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that if, they, if they've lost... If they've lost former uh, activists and um, non-activists, but who you know who were who were very solid, dependable uh, supporters, uh, just on my street alone, then um, 
yeah, there's there's a, there's a very big problem. You know, there's a very big problem. Mm. Uh, and the first thing to solving a problem is recognizing that you've got a problem, and it and it and it seems to me that they don't recognize that they have a problem. It, it but, but they think that the problem is, you know. Um, they they think that the problem is uh, people that they consider to be um, uh, unacceptably uh, unacceptably uh, radical, you know, in their politics. And um, I think it's interesting some of the commentary that's that I've seen in in recent uh, weeks because. Uh, there were many people who, who, who would probably style themselves as soft left, you know, kind of moderate trade unionists who wanted to see an end to the Corbyn era and who supported Keir Starmer enthusiastically when he first was elected. Um, and I've now started seeing a lot of stuff online, uh, you, know, it, you know, people um, on, uh, you know, from that position on the political spectrum who are starting to get quite concerned about um, the direction of travel and saying, uh, you know, that the, 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 the people who appear to be steering the Labour Party at the moment uh, have, have, have an evident um, intolerance for, 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 for people uh, who, who, whose politics is a socialist politics, you know, and, um, you know, where do, where do they draw the line, you know, where, where are they going to draw the line? There are people in the Labour Party now who consider some of the things that Andy Burnham comes out with as unacceptably radical. Exactly. Yeah, and it is, that, it, it, exactly. Or, or Ed Miliband. I mean, there are elements... <laughs> You consider Ed Miliband's position on climate change to be unacceptable, and what Burnham's saying around, you know, we, we you know, the, his calls for the party to come out in 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 favour of uncharged universal provision of um, social care, reframed as the, the the right to independent living. There are there are certainly people um, steering Labour at the moment who consider those two politicians to be unacceptably of the left, you know, and anybody who remembers Andy Burnham when he was actually in government and Ed Miliband, you know, knows how ridiculous that is. You know, yeah. they are not radical politicians. They're not radical people in thought or intent. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think there, are, I think that, there, that some of the people that initially uh, supported Starmer, I think, are starting to wake up and, and they're starting to think hard about, you know, what what that what that party is actually going to look like if those people have their uh, have have their way. I'd just like to be, uh, put a record here and remind people about the Ed Stone. Do you remember the Ed Stone? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. You know, and um, Andy Burnham. Uh, in my experience, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him a radical. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. In some uh, leaked reports and stuff, they pointed him out as one of the most radical ones. But I think he's, uh, I'll, I'll put it on record. I, I think he's quite dangerous, you know, uh, in the sense that I don't think he has an ideology. I think he's dangerous in the sense. And this might be a bit of a controversial view, but 
I think he's a bit like Boris Johnson, in a way, because all he wants to do is be king of the world, you know? He doesn't... Shabazz, do you do, yeah, but that's exactly what we were talking about earlier, though, about Game of Thrones, do you yeah. see? Because people call him King of the North. Yeah. So maybe this this episode should be called Winter is Coming, yeah? <laughs> Winter is Coming, yeah. You think I'll be in trouble if I called it Winter is Coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is coming, and, um, you know... Uh, I'm just about old enough to be able to remember the winter of discontent, you know, and uh, yeah. I think we're going to be living through something like that again, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I do think Andy Benham scares me in the sense that if you got him in a room and you got the right advisors around him, I think he could, could be cajoled into anything. That's interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and that's quite scary to me because to bring it back to modern day, you know, modern-day Labour Party, Peter Mandelson's back. And he's the one, like, whispering, like, Veris in... Uh, <laughs> in the... Uh, uh, Starmer's ear, so, you know? Well, Mandelson gave a... Um, a masterclass to um, the School of Government at Oxford University about six, five, six years ago. They got him in to talk to their graduate students about, you know, the, the work that he'd done rebranding Labour under the new, new Labour era. And um, he laid his cards on the table back then and basically said that what was required was uh, not actually a rebranding, but a, a completely new, and he used the word product. And that's that that that's what's that's what's happening at the moment, you know. That's exactly what's going on. I don't believe there's going to be a Labour Party in, you know, three years' time. I, I think it's uh, you know, I think it's it's on its last legs, quite honestly. So you don't think there'll be a Labour Party? Do you think there'll be a Donald term of Donald Trump in the White House? Well, you know what they're what they're calling what the commentators are calling Trump's actions and behaviour now is a rolling coup. Have you seen that? No. Yeah, rolling coup. They're calling it, and yeah. So t tell tell me about like on the sixth of January. I know when, when I had, when I had the experience of watching it, watching those events unfold. I now realise, looking back on it, that I found it more traumatic than 9-11. And it took me a long time to figure out that out, you know, why it traumatised me so much. What, what were your reactions to it? Uh, I can see what you mean, but I, I wouldn't say I found it... Mm. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Sorry, go on. Um... Yeah, did you did you find it a comparable experience to other major kind of traumatic events that we've seen played out on television in our lifetime? So things like I don't know, nine eleven and the um, uh, the flooding in New Orleans. So the uh, the two things in you know in my I tell you, I tell you, I tell you something. Uh, you know, nine eleven it was. When I when I saw that on the TV screen, 
uh, I, I was just in complete shock and I was a bit I didn't know how to feel because uh, nothing like that had ever happened and it looked deliberate you know or or it looked like somebody had done something deliberately but with the Trump thing it might be a bit surprising but it wasn't it wasn't that surprising so I wasn't that shocked because people were saying to me something like that could happen so it didn't just quite bolt out of the blue it was like oh my god they've actually done it whereas with 9-11 it was like oh this something like this could actually happen you know so there's a bit of a difference there for me but I know what you you're, you mean as well and, and that's your experience but yeah for me the Trump thing wasn't shocking it was just the 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 culmination of what potentially could have happened, whereas nine eleven, I would, at that time I didn't even fathom it could happen, you know. So that for me is where where the difference mm. was, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think the reason why maybe the reason why uh, I had a stronger negative reaction to 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 january the capital is because you know you know that that you know the one of the most famous images from the, those events which was the guy in the in the QAnon sweatshirt coming up the stairs in the capitol building and then you had one of the uh police officers trying to hold him back yeah that image is the one that like that that um, made me realize that all this all this content that gets posted every second online that that it's easy to assume it sort of is contained within that online space yeah that 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 photo made me realize that what happens online and what was kind of fermented online, which, you know, is, is extremism much of it, as you know, as we, as we all know, it's, yes. it's extremist revolutionary far right kind of political um, organizing. And what happened, what happened on January the 6th was the 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 escape of all of that from the online world into the real world, you know, yeah. and I found that absolutely terrifying. I really did. Yeah, but it also shows that uh, the online stuff does have an effect. It it does feed through. It's like Chinese water. It has a drip drip effect, and after after many, many days and weeks, the bottle gets filled with water and then something will tip over. And I know that metaphor is a bit weird, but I just came up with it then. But, uh, but yeah, It's know. called algorithmic radicalisation. Is that what it's called? There you go. Algorithmic radicalisation. Yeah, because on the surface we think, oh, oh, it's just idiots abusing each other, you know? <laughs> 
you know, it won't have any effect in the real world, but it does. Eventually, well, it's, it's no doubt, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, and I tell it, you another thing that is quite dangerous for some reason. Well, not for pretty obvious reasons, I suppose. But journalists love Twitter, yeah, mm. and and because journalists, some of them are probably quite lazy. They uh, they get a lot of their sources from Twitter because of. They still think it's this hip and new thing where, the, where if they're on Twitter, they're cool, you know, and they, they're down with the kids kind of thing, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and they get a lot of their sources from Twitter. So in that sense, it goes full circle to what you were saying, the most dangerous part of online uh, discourse is is one of those facts, really, that the journalists want to just have a hundred and forty characters in their story. They don't. They don't want to go any deeper. And they don't. What's more dangerous is they don't feel they need to go any deeper. Mm. You know, because yeah. we just wrap it up. Mm. Really. Yeah. And that's what needs to change. Needs to change. The reason why I was asking you about what, what do you think the media of the the role of the media should be is I, I hate to remind people, but we've had one hundred and fifty thousand deaths from COVID during the pandemic, and no, no, nobody in the media has been banging the drum about that at all. You know. Yeah. yeah, they mention the daily rate, but nobody put nobody puts it in a context or anything like that, you know. So I think that is where I think the media uh, has gone wrong, uh, and not all, because we 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 in the middle of a pandemic, but they go all like it's just normal times, and it's just the normal rough and tumble of politics. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I don't feel at all uh, like we're out of the pandemic. I think it was this... um, uh, I don't think it was an event. I think I, I think it's it's some kind of era, the new era that we're in, you know. It wasn't just a public health crisis event that's done. It's it's changed things, hasn't it, you know? Yeah, and I was thinking about this the other, the other day. It's changed things, but in other ways, I think they've gone back to normal in a way, in, in terms of people's attitudes. People's attitudes of like, you know, remember at the start of the pandemic, people had a lot more time for each other and a lot more, like, they used to ring each other up or try and visit them outside or whatever. You know, but now, now it feels like we, although the pandemic is still here, the day-to-day attitudes of people have gone back to what they used to be. I think, mm-hmm. I think, and uh, people, I thought it would, I thought it would usher in a, a slower pace of life and a more ref, reflective phase of life for people, mm. rather than 
going back to business as usual. And, you know, there's there's certain things that uh, are going back to business as usual, usual, like you can't get a GP's appointment, for example, and stuff like that. And, like, but yet pubs and clubs and all that is open as normal. Yeah. Really? So it's like, like, there's a lot of things that I've got back, but the, uh, what I'm surprised at is that, well, not surprised, but uh, upset about it is that people's mental attitudes seem to have shifted back to pre-pandemic attitudes mm-hmm. of like, no, we haven't got time for anybody. So I was hoping for out of something really bad was that somebody's mental outlook would change, but it doesn't feel like to me that it has done. You know, it feels like it's rebounding mm. back to what it, it was. Um, Tony Benn used to tell this story. Yeah. And who knows if it was true or not. It might have been apocryphal or I don't know. But anyway, he used to tell the story about how he once took a train journey and when he got on the train, it was a capitalist train and everybody was keeping themselves to themselves and, you know, focused on whatever it was, their own life. And uh, and then the train uh, broke down and... Um, and uh, people were forced to interact with each other and people started sharing, according to Tony Pan, people started sharing their sandwiches and <laughs> having a sing song or whatever. And he said, by the end of that journey, well, you can imagine the punchline, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. By the end of the journey, we were a socialist train. <laughs> yeah. That's what he said. And there is a Frank, a Frank Capra film called It Happened One Night. And I sometimes wonder whether or not that there's a scene in that film, which I sometimes wonder whether or not that was the inspiration of Tony Benn's chain story, because it that's pretty much what happens on, on, on this, this Greyhound bus. It breaks down and everyone starts getting along. Um, but I want, is, is that kind of how you feel about, about COVID? that we kind of broke down for a while and there was this sort of hiatus where everyone started to think about new ways of interacting and doing community and so on. And now, now the train's back up and running again. Yeah, exactly. Thank you yeah. for, for putting your visual metaphor to <laughs> my thoughts there because that, that was a good bit of work. And, and uh, yeah, exactly. I feel exactly that. And I, I don't think... If we if we have another surge, I don't think we'll be able to get that spirit back again, because I think that spirit should have been. I don't know hardest for what, but I, I, I was hoping that it was going to last a bit longer, you know, and have some have some real change, not not just you know, open up our country of, and to be sold off even more. And have have a new health secretary going. Government can't do everything. Uh, social care be, begins at home. And, how dare uh, and, How fucking dare he say and, that? Yeah. And government is the last part of call, you know. And for people that have been fighting for independent living for all their entire lives, and for 
for for now generations. What kind of kick in the teeth is that? Yeah, I mean, some right, some like uh, you know, uh, I don't want to be classes there, but some kind of wealthy Tory who who doesn't have a clue what it's like to fight for every hour of your social care that you've got and fight for a good wage for your carers so you can retain them and attract them in the first place. So I just found that disgusting, really. Yeah. And yeah, so, so did I. And it's pure, purely ideological and it's just a development of, of, you know, the kind of rhetoric that Thatcher used to wheel out, you know, um, it's in that vein. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I could say that, you know, when I was younger, I, I kind of got very involved in party politics and was young enough back then to believe that, you know, um, things would sort of be considerably better if we just voted out the baddies and got the goodies in. And I don't, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I think that this is again, something we were talking about at this meeting that I had this morning. Uh, but I think that organizing ourselves in self-protecting ways, you know, is gonna is gonna be critical, I think, to um surviving what's coming down the line. And I don't I don't just mean, you know, politic, you know, political decision making. I mean climate, I mean, you know, all these kind of massive challenges that are that are on the horizon. Yeah. And I just wanted to say uh, for for the record, that you will forever be young on this podcast. So <laughs> you know, and you're still young today, Alan. What are you going on about? When I was younger, <laughs> but you know, I actually used to believe when I was like in my teens and twenties that you know, if you voted in the right party, that it would be you know, happy days. You know. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe that anymore. Maybe we need to harness a bit more of that energy, though, as a, as a as a uh, as a form of group thing. Because I think, well, yeah, everything does feel hopeless. But I wasn't going to contradict myself here. Now I do think there's there's always room for hope because where there oh, is yeah. where there is life, there's hope, right? Um, oh god oh god yeah i mean i think it's a massive mistake to think that politics is our is 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 going to save any of us i think i think that self organizing and creating community creating these kind of uh you know these kind of pa para political spaces and movements you know uh that can influence but not get sucked into those organizations which can be very oppressive very ableist very misogynistic uh they demand a lot from people uh and one of the things they demand is obedience you know yeah. uh all of all of that stuff which, which actually um is antithetical to the kind of energy and the hopefulness that you're talking about you know 
Yeah, but for 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 fuck's sake, just don't say big society. <laughs> you no, know, big society, and I won't say community <laughs> well building, <laughs> crest and model. <laughs> yeah, they just have a list of these these things. You know, like going. Oh, we got this. We're going to wheel this out now. We're going to wheel this out. And going back to activism. So how how do you think the police bill will affect activism? Sorry. What, uh, how, um, what, what, how do I... Th- um, sorry, can you say that again? So Yeah, no problem. How do you think uh, the police crime and policing bill will affect activism? Um, well, you know, I mean, they, it's not deterring people from protesting in Liverpool at the moment. I mean, they're, try, they're, they're, they're protesting at the arms there, there, aren't they? Yeah. So there are still there are still actions taking place, but um, I, don't, I don't I don't think that bill in and of itself is 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 going to be the be all or end all factor. But I think there's just loads of different intersecting challenges at the moment that are working against people undertaking that kind of that kind of activism. Um, COVID being being one as I said but you know what also cost just cost uh you know like most of these the these these things do happen in either either London or Manchester or Bristol you know and um like for example there are some social care related demonstrations that that they were going to be happening on the 30th I found out the other day but the only places they're happening are London Manchester Liverpool and Birmingham you know and um yeah, I mean, if you're a disabled person living outside one of those cities, then you know there are co- there's cost element. You know, it's a cost factor, isn't there? Yeah. You know, and, and also, um, actions taking place in the middle of the day. Uh, you know, in in the middle of a, a, what for, what for 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 some of us is a working week. You know, are we expected yeah. to take time off work to go to these things? It's like you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't want this podcast to be a Kia Starbuck kick fest, but you know, uh, I just just dawned on me that if you ever wanted a gift to put a stamp on the Labour Party, this bill was it, right? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but was he a human rights lawyer or something along those lines? So if anybody's gonna have Want to show his show his style and create a stamp on his own Labour Party? Wouldn't he be ending up and getting rid of the the uh, the crime sentencing bill? Well, I mean, you know, they don't have the numbers to get rid of anything. No, but he did. He hasn't even been vocal about. No. About it. I mean. Yeah, I understand that he hasn't got the numbers, but he could be out there going, I wish I had the numbers. Then I would do this, this, and this, you know. Yeah. He still has a voice. He still has his way, you know, his, 
his office could still, you know. It's dereliction of duty. I mean, you know, that, that, that this is what this is what I would expect. This is what I would be looking for from an effective and a principled opposition. And you know, I got into um, a, 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 a verbal uh, confrontation with with my member of parliament uh, over this, over their, that that the the, uh, the abstaining. Uh, that the majority of, of the Labour MPs uh, participated in over the um, covert human intelligence um, surveillance bit. Yeah. Spy cops. Um, and what we were told, you know, we were, there were a number of us that voiced our serious concerns. And, um, you know, because I'd, I'd, I'd followed... Uh, so, some some of those activists, you know, who 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 taken legal action against against the police for you know women who were tricked into relationships and some of whom actually had children with undercover officers, not knowing their identity. Uh, it was a human rights abuses, you know, plain and simple. And um, and what we had was the, was the Labour Party abstaining on a bill that contains provisions that. Uh, enables uh, that 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 kind of offending to take place uh, w- without any legal redress. And um, Shami Chakrabarti made, uh, you know, she tried to amend uh, the bill uh, to her credit, and um, she made the point, you know, that we we cannot uh, we 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 cannot sit back and see. Um, informants you know uh people you know there are all sorts of people there's reasons why, why why somebody might want to become a police informant and one of those reasons might be because they've got a, they've got a history of criminal behavior and they've they've struck some deal with the police you know um yeah there's all, all sorts of dodgy people who might want to go into that line of work and are we really uh well we're now living in a country in which uh police informants have uh, a very high degree of legal protection if they choose to in, engage in criminal offending behavior you know that that's the reality and for labor to have abstained on it is an absolute total and utter stain on that party you know and and it was one of the one of one of the motivating factors in me uh resigning my membership do so uh, if you could say something to Keir Starmer what would it be uh I you know he's not you know I, I he I don't have it I I wouldn't have any anything to say to him whatsoever I mean you know you know I wouldn't have anything to say to him, Shabazz, seriously. Uh, I mean, you know, the, Labour, the Labour Party is a collective endeavour at the end of the day, you know, and um, it, 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 it's, it's, it, he's, he's, he's irrelevant largely. You know, there's a, a large number of people that were behind the concerted effort to get him into post and they all uh, share the responsibility for, for, for that and for the direction of travel. It's not about an individual, you know. Yeah, but... Yeah, uh, as you 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 have anything to say to him. I'll just tell you what I said to him when I when I bumped into him at the hostings uh, before the election, and I asked him about so, social care, and and he was leaning on my chair, and he was looking around to see if the cameras were looking, and I was like uh, going and saying. Asking him about social care, 
And he, you know what he said to me? He goes, oh, we would love to do a national care service, but the Tories won't let it happen. And he goes, I've got to go. And that was it. He said that to you? Yeah. When was this? Uh, uh, Pre-his election. Pre-his election? Yeah. Because because he sent John Prynne an email saying that he supported the National Independent Living Support Service, you know, that 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 DPAC were involved in developing. Yeah. He told John Prynne that he supported that. Yeah. Uh, but he I just said to him, what what are you gonna do about social care? He goes, We would like to see a national care service. Uh, and, it, and it, but straight away he goes, but that won't be happening because the Tories won't let it. And yet, last week the Tories have come out and, well, this week was it? They came out and said exactly they are. Well, no, they haven't said it explicitly, but there was a piece in the Times that said, and it clearly, I think, come from Javid, and it was basically. Um, it, it 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 was it was. Uh, Strong, strongly uh, suggesting that um, when the white paper comes out, it's going to set out exactly that, a national care service. Yeah, but I wonder how many, how much of that money will be for for younger disabled people and how much of that will be for elderly care, you know? Because what I think they're worried about is uh, bed blocking and, like, you know, keeping, keeping the NHS beds free. I think that's their main motivation. You got, like I said to you before, you got to keep in mind where this person's coming from. He said in his conference speech that government comes last, family comes first. Yeah. You know, so how can we have hope that this person? Who stood up there and said that? Sure. Will a few weeks later do, come out with the whole national care service? Yeah, yeah. I, I just can't see it. What? When I was when I was doing a lot of door knocking. Yeah. One of the uh, top two things that people wanted to talk about. Uh, was social care and it wasn't exclusively women but it was more women than men uh, and when they started talking about it they were really um, often uh, not always but often willing to share very very personal family history information um, I had people uh, crying in front of me, uh, breaking down because they were physically and mentally exhausted from the burden that they were carrying as unpaid family carers. So um, typically uh, the, the people I met who, who were in that situation were older women. So I'd say women over 45, between 45 and 70. And um, more than one of those women, they were caring not only for an adult disabled child, uh, so typically a child with um, severe autism, uh, 
uh, or other for, or, 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 or learning disability of some form. Um, so, some, of them, some of them were in that situation, but they were simultaneously caring for either an older partner or an older parent with uh, cognitive impairment from dementia. Yeah. So those women, uh, you know, the, the majority of them, not all of them, but the majority of them were quite candid with me in saying that typically they voted conservative, but they were prepared to vote for a party that was going to give them uh, a better deal, that was going to, you know, they wanted to sit, they clearly wanted and would get behind radical reform of social care. And what the government has given people is nothing like what people, what voters are actually looking for. It's mm -hmm. nothing, you know, it's nowhere near enough. Uh, and we all know that. And, and part of the campaigning that we're doing, as you know, um, to raise awareness about how, um, how little genuine change is going to come down the pipeline because of this this command paper this build build back better health and social care command paper um what what we're doing is gathering data from freedom of information um act uh requests to local authorities um so there's 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 about three of us that, that that are doing this and i know some journalists are doing it as well so we're trying to find out for example how many disabled people across England um, are in debt to their local authority because of care charges? And how many local authorities are actually pursuing those disabled people through the courts? And we are actually hearing through the grapevine, we're trying to get the details. Um, we're hearing that, that, that there are indeed cases of local authorities take prosecuting, prosecuting disabled people for care charge debt. Wow, you know, and my feeling is that if if we can if we can get more information about that and we can we can publicise that, you know, I think that you know most people in this country don't want that to be happening. You know, they don't. You know, I would like to think that they would uh, be pretty horrified by that and by the reality of care charging in and of itself. And a lot of people don't even realise. That disabled people's income can be taken by a local authority in care charges. Yes, utterly, utterly disgraceful. And uh, and I just like to finish by talking about uh, the Human Rights Act because Dominic Raab, who's now in charge of it, apparently apparently doesn't like it, and I think. I think the Tories are going to try and get rid of the Human Rights Act. What do you think? Well, they're, cons they're consulting at the moment. It, it was always one of their post-Brexit plans to try and um, replace it with what, what I've read they refer to as a British Bill of Rights. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean... For all for all sorts of for all sorts of obvious reasons, the Conservative Party or any uh, hard right populist uh, party are going to um, are going to be uh, look, looking at reforming that because they've 
you know, as you as you well know, they use the Human Rights Act um, as a kind of totem, really, uh, for for um, for for uh, and anti anti migration narratives, you know. Um, uh, or, or, you, you know the, these the, these these cases in which um, you know you you have people prosecuted under the, the uh, for, for terrorism offences. You know they always find a way the Conservative Party to bring the Human Rights Act, Act into that. You know and to denigrate the protections that it affords all of us. You know mm. on the back of of of, of these these um, specialist kind of legal situations, these extreme legal situations. And um, there's something called the British Institute of Human Rights at, at um, Queen Mary University in London. And they're doing a lot of work at, at the moment to try and raise a, you know, a better level of awareness of, 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 of exactly that, you know, that the Human Rights Act protects all of us, you know, uh, a lot of people just simply don't seem, don't seem to understand or appreciate that. Yeah. Is there, is there anything you'd like to say before we close? Mm. I don't think so. Well, that's the first. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it just remains for me to say thank you for the bottom of my heart, Alan, for doing this. You're more than and, welcome. Uh, and, uh, I actually yeah. forgot that we were doing your podcast. It felt like we were just having a phone conversation. Yeah, well, we can do that as well. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, 